Well, hello again. Welcome to another Bitter Dregs Star Trek The Original Series podcast. And tonight, I've got, live from Madison, Wisconsin, Mr. Eric. Hello. And from Chicago again, it's Rob. Greetings, gentle listeners. So, um, unfortunately, uh, we're recording this particular one a second time because of a um, technical (coughs) screw-up by yours truly and <laughs> so we i just know that this time around it's going to be twice as good and we're going to have you know a lot more insightful ins- insightful commentary in half the usual time <laughs> <laughs> i just know it's going to be true so well anyway tonight we're going to be talking about actually going to we're going to record this one and we're going to do two episodes tonight Cover, cover cover some ground. Uh, we're gonna do metamorphosis, and then if we're if we're still conscious, we'll uh, we'll talk about journey to Babel. Very very different episodes, <laughs> if, if I do say so. Although there are similarities. Oh, which I will get. We'll, we'll to. have to get into that later. Okay okay. So metamorphosis. I I really find this one to be. A, a bit of an oddball. It it has it has some different production values than I'm used to seeing in a lot of episodes. Uh, the musical score is is I think by somebody who didn't write music for most of the rest of the show, so it, it comes off a little different. And uh, has has a, a really good I believe set of science fiction ideas in it. Um, some of it I don't think comes off as well as it could. And I think we're going to also have some really good uh, gender issues, so to speak, when we get around to that part of part of the discussion. So, for, really, in the end, for me, this one, uh, it it's it's interesting, but has has some flaws in it. So, uh, Eric, what what's your overall on this one? Well, it, I can't say that it's a it's a real favorite of mine, but um, I did like it. Um, and precisely for some of the reasons that you mentioned, uh, it is offbeat. It is uh, it, it's very it's very different um, for a Star Trek episode. Uh, there is no overt socio political commentary that I can discern, and it's basically a kind of odd love story. And the way it's done is again, it's offbeat. It's Kind of perky and not uh, not what you'd really expect out of Star Trek, particularly the original series. But uh, for me, it works, and uh, I like it. Rob, yeah, I had mixed feelings about this episode, and um, agree with with uh, that it is an oddball. Um, the score is and and the set are sort of evoke a mood. That's unusual in Star Trek. Um, sort of a I don't know, contemplative um, mood, and the the planet surface is unusually dark. It's this dark shade of violet, um, which is which is really unusual for the um, the setting, and so that just sort of contributes to this very sort of strange or kind of mysterious. Um, and you know, uh, and um, so, and then I think there are story elements that don't 
come together for me, uh, which is my biggest problem with this episode. I, I do think the theme is really interesting, something that, you know, has some, uh, you know, there's a predecessor sort of in a, a Twilight Zone episode, which we can talk about. Um, but so, I, you know, I think it's a, it's an episode that does, for me, that doesn't quite succeed in what it aims for. Okay, thanks. Let, so let's let's get actually get into the story. Um, they're obvi- obviously they they have to have a way to get you know get get the characters down to this planet to meet Cochrane and um, well why not have the the energy being uh, take over the shuttle and make it crash on the planet? Um, yeah, not not really a big deal there, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess you got to do it somehow and. It's kind of interesting to me how they kind of get to where they're going, as far as discovering the nature of of, of the companion and all the all the other the emotional things that go with it. And I I really wonder, uh, you you know, if if they paced it well enough because because I know we've we've talked about this in the past that perhaps they didn't have enough time to really you know get everything done in a satisfactory way. Yeah, and the, and I think the sort of the biggest omission, or the one that um, is, you know, do, do kind of makes it hard for the story is the character of uh, Ambassador Hedford. Um, and I mean, we can see sort of see the, the character arc for her is that she she's this you know completely uh, career obsessed person who's never never known love. And she's uh, comes down to the the planet, and she's moved by the the love between Cochrane and the companion. Um, and then she, the companion, joins with her in her body, and she, you know, possibly or possibly not, um, sort of, uh, you know, acquiesces in this in this relationship um, with Cochrane and is fulfilled, you know. Um, so, but I, but I don't feel like there's enough of of that for given to us uh, in the episode. I think it's I think we can convenient. yeah. Well, I think we can piece it together, um, but it doesn't feel it, it feels really forced by the end. It seems to come on really suddenly. Her transformation, yeah, especially in light of the fact that she went from being repulsed by you know this relationship once she became aware of it. To um, you know, actually, you know, not approving of Cochrane, <laughs> also being re- uh, repulsed by it, if I remember that correctly. Well, so no, I don't. That, go ahead. I was going to say I don't think that uh, she was uh, objected to Cochrane's repulsion. It was more um, well, his rejection of of the, the companion's relationship. love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But 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 earlier she you know once when Spocker Kirk one of the two suggested that uh, the companion was expressing some kind of emotional attachment to Cochrane that she called that disgusting. Oh, that's right. Yes, I had forgotten that. So it, again, yeah, it, it it's uh, it, it's definitely one of those things that you can you can explain pretty easily. I mean, one thing you could just say, well, she's 
she's ill and you know not in her right mind and has these you know has these you know wild mood swings whatever you want to want to write it off to but it, it it does seem to happen very quickly and it, especially at the end as as rob mentioned that uh just suddenly oh well we're together now and everything's hunky-dory well you know part of that could be uh, a situation like uh, the lady death protests too much <laughs> that her her protestations were really masking the um uh, well jealousy in uh, well what she comes out and says you know like cochran you know, is offered love and rejects it, and how could he do that? And yeah, um, so I mean, there. It if you read it from a certain point of view, there are clues that could lead to the the conclusion that's presented. I, I think also that um, you mentioned that this this was very similar to a Twilight Zone episode. That of course, and that that was done half the time. Um, if this were a typical Twilight Zone episode, it would not have had all the, you know, Kirk and Spock and the rest of them trying to get off the planet subplot. And so you wouldn't have all that time spent with them devising a strategy to, to beat the companion. Right. And that, that obviously took away from the, the central, you know, the love story, basically. Right. Well, and, you know, the, one of the, things that I, I've gotten from reading about um, the original series and the conditions and constraints under which it was produced is that the the studio demanded some kind of action uh, fight uh, some sort of scene like that a, a, a confrontation, every, yeah yes, some kind of physical confrontation in pretty much every episode and so I think that it was very common for them to have to sacrifice story elements that would be nice to, to know and to see in order to shoehorn in the obligatory action sequences. Yeah, and I, I, you know, to be fair, the, um, beyond that, it would have been pretty ridiculous had they not devoted any of the story to their struggle to get off the planet. That would that would be you know, completely ridiculous, right? For Kirk not to be trying that. True. Yeah. No, that's it's, it's, there's always a tension. I think with you know they say I don't know where I read this, but in in the movie the the main character has um, is transformed. But in a TV series, um, it's the main character who stays the same in every episode. And you see, you know, the tension is that they have... It's Kirk and Spock and the crew stay the same. Um, and it's the, it's the people they encounter who change during the course of these episodes. And you have to strike the right balance between showing that, that transformation and also giving enough attention to the stars of the show, you know? And I think, I, I mean, what amazes me is that Star, the original series, I think, did a, a great job, and I've said this before, of finding strong um, supporting players, you know, to, to fill in these roles. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's, all, it's in fact a surprise, and it seems unusual when, um, when they're weak. Because they're usually so strong, and so and you know, put in really interesting performances, like uh, the actor who played well, the 
both the the actress who played Ambassador Hetford and also the actor who plays um, Zephyrin Cochran in this episode are both really strong and and bring a lot of you know um, really interesting things to their to their parts. They're, you know, so and and they are given a relatively high amount of uh, screen time. Especially when you consider that you know Shatner and, and Nimoy are the two that really usually get the lion's share of the of the time. Right. That's a good point because um, uh, they uh, they actually had a surprisingly small share uh, of this of this particular episode. Now that I think of it, yeah. And, and a lot of except, except for a few instances, uh, they're they're largely observing and reacting to what's going on in the story. That's true. So, how about how about the characters? Uh, let's let's go to Cochrane. And what's uh, did you did you find that pretty pretty well done? Or I really liked the the character myself. Uh, he seemed sincere and um, uh, surprisingly guileless. Um, it, it's it's an interesting contrast with um, James Cromos. Uh, portrayal of Cochran, Zephyr Cochran, in um, the Star Trek Next Generation movie, First Contact. Uh, and and we've talked about it before, but you know there there were dramatic demands uh, in the movie that that required a, well pretty much a, a completely different take on. On the character, um, and and Cromwell did a very good job. Yeah, job he's very good in that movie, of course, like he always is. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know the argument could be made that uh, the the development, the character development that we see in First Contact, leads to uh, the the character that we see in Metamorphosis, because in fact uh, the Cromwell's portrayal of the character, I mean, in the time in the, <laughs> the Star Trek universe timeline, took place long before uh, the episode Metamorphosis took place. Yeah, of course, and I, it, it's pretty apparent that when they went about reintroducing that character, they they didn't feel much obligation to the one represented in the episode, and no. that that's okay, you know the. Obviously, they they're going to do that just like they did in in the feature film that came out yep. last year. So, yep. And it, it's also um, the the Cochrane I see in this episode is uh, again like many characters in Star Trek is a product of it of the of the time. There there's a bit of a gee whiz astronaut um, attitude he's got. Yeah, that, that's kind of like that, and and that's that's also you know pretty normal. You uh, you know. The, just the mannerisms and everything are, are quite different from the 1990s sensibility that James Cromwell probably was putting in uh, to his. Right. Yeah, he's, Zephyrin Cochran is not what you would think of as a brilliant adventurer, um, the way he's portrayed in this episode, Just, which is interesting. It's not... Um, but, but he's very likable, I think, the way we... We really want to um, to like him, and I think that is important for the love story to succeed. You know, um, 
the love story between him and and the companion, um, and also the ambassador, the threesome. <laughs> well, and right. also the the fact that he he's very sympathetic um, as far as uh, feeling bad that 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 Kirk and and company have been stranded there on his behalf. Well, he's, and he's genuinely conflicted about it. Well, and he says several times that you know he's more than willing to help them, and and he and he's good to his word. He he does indeed help them, and pretty much does everything short of just killing the companion to uh, to aid them in getting off the the, the planet or planetoid or whatever it was. Oh yeah, of course. And what about the uh, the very end when he, he chooses to stay behind and, and tells Kirk not to tell them about me? Well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, he he his stated reason for for leaving or for going into space was that he was old and dying and he wanted to die in space. And that being the case, you know, there there it makes sense that he would. Um, that he would not want uh, to be disturbed by civilization because you, you got that impression that he was basically well not running away from civilization but um, leaving it behind and mm-hmm. and well you know now that I say that there's all there's also some indication because. He, he tell once uh, the companion is joined with Commissioner Hedford. He says, you know, he's t- talking about you know, you know, there's all this, all all of these planets and all of this to see out there, and I'll, I'll show it to you. And I mean, he's all set to leave with her and show her the galaxy, and and obviously that's what they would have done had the companion been able to leave. Yeah, I, I I think that that's fair. Um, the the one part that seems a little odd or a bit of a stretch is that after he asks Kirk this, Kirk just kind of nods and goes on his way. And the, and and also, of course, the the matter of uh, what happened to this supposedly very important commissioner who was out, you know, negotiating peace treaties and things like that. Yeah, and uh and I mean Kirk is very glib about it. He says, "Well, they'll just have to find another woman to stop that." Yeah, another woman. <laughs> that, which which is an interesting point. Um Yeah, yeah. But um uh you know how how exactly would he he handle that? And I I guess, you know, you can make the argument that when Cochran asked him not to tell them, he meant the general public. I mean, Kirk couldn't agree not to report it. Right. I mean, he'd have so to. So does he ask it to be classified or something? Or uh, I'm I, sure he could do that. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't could, matter really. But yeah, yeah. I, Which, I mean, you know, sh- showing my uh, you know Star Star Trek geekiness is it reminds me of I believe that third season episode Requiem for Methuselah. Oh right, mm-hmm. where he, you know, is they're they're kept there because he's afraid they'll go out and tell people about it. Right. So um, you know, but Corey Kirk doesn't go. Well, we didn't tell anybody about Zeph from Cockroon back in the second season. Oops. <laughs> I mean, uh, I didn't say that. Uh, 
Yeah, this, that was the least plausible. I mean, particularly considering what happened, that the, the companion essentially trapped Nancy Hedford on the planet and then allowed her to almost die. Um, and, the, you know... Uh, and you know all this happened, and and Kirk is not going to report it. It just strikes me as re- as a real stretch. Um, well, but again, the I don't know that the implication was that he wouldn't report it. it. That the implication to me was that he wouldn't make Zephyr or, or Cochran's that the fact that Cochran is alive and well uh, widely known. I mean, like John suggested, you know. Making it a classified report seems right, right, likely and perfectly reasonable. Oh, it's still—I mean, it's a nice sentiment, though, for the character, obviously. Sure. And that—that that, yeah, obviously doesn't. If you want to get technical, doesn't hold up so well, but not ultimately very important. Yeah. Right. So, the, um, go ahead. No, I was going to say the important thing about this episode is, well, maybe we don't want to get to that yet. No, don't. Maybe we want to deal with uh, other things first. Well, um, well, let's see. What else? Uh, Misogyny corner? Well, we might as well go there. It's already been brought up at least once. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the best place to start is obviously with um, with with the commissioner. And, uh, you know, she, she's the classic uh, career woman, doesn't know love, and all that it's very tragic and has this realization on her deathbed that, that that she's thrown it all away and what for what for I was gonna, just gonna say that um, Kirk you know who's you know who's given given up everything for his career doesn't seem to be broken up about it at all he seems to be very happy um, oh no no with the enterprise being his the love of his life. And well, besides so, that, you know, he shags everything that comes within 10 feet of well, him. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe she did too, though. <laughs> uh, that's true. You, know, true. you don't know this. And, you know, maybe she got around and just, it was a, you know, empty sex. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but, yeah, you, you got that. And, and of course, which, and I know we brought up last time we talked about this, but, um, of course, when they first all meet, Oh, Cochran's like, like, oh, and a beautiful woman. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay, he's been marooned there forever and la la la. But it's it's also, it, it's not something I'm terribly shocked to hear either. Well, you know, um, going back to the commissioner, I was just thinking. Was, was the implication, you think, that... Uh, a career-minded woman, uh, a woman focused on her career, pretty much to the exclusion of all else, was the was the message there that a woman can't be fulfilled only by a career, that she has to have a man in her life and presumably family, children, and things like this? Is that is that why it's misogynistic? I I don't know if it goes that far, you know, explicitly, but. Um, to me, it kind of uh, has. It's written in in a way that reminds me of what they used to call the women's films, you know, back in the old Hollywood, thirties and forties days, and the the plots of those movies typically had a, a a main character, a woman who, 
um, you know, is is like a go-getter and career gal and all that stuff, and and finds out she's ultimately unhappy until she, you know, settles down with the right guy, and then everything's good. And and, and of course, abandons the career. That's the the message in there. And there there are lots of examples of that in old movies. And I you know, I, see, I see a little of that flavor in that. But I mean, obviously that era of, of movie making was had a lot of influence in the people who wrote for original Star Trek. Right. And, I mean, it, it, it's it's very easy to spot in a lot of the action sequences and the, the ship combat that's based on submarine movies and all that. But I think there's a little bit of that there. It's it's maybe not quite as overt as it I was. I think I'm more, there is a more generous reading, which I think maybe, maybe you were suggesting, Eric, which is that it's more like you know, it it could be similar to the plight of of contemporary people who dedicate everything to their careers and and don't really have you know time to find love. Um, it haven't struck the right balance between career and right and other things. Well, um, can you think of any male characters um, who in the Star Trek original? Who express similar sentiments or well? If feelings. you go in the movies, you sort of do because you um, there. There's lots of examples of Kirk. Sure. You know, like talking in Star Trek Generations when he you know starts talking to Scotty about Sulu having a family and all that stuff. And well, and Picard too. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, they they, they obviously decided to mine that for, for quite a bit of material. Although in the series, there's there's nothing even hint at it. Well, a little bit in uh, the naked time. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the yeah. naked time when when Kirk says there's no, beach to, no, no beach to walk on, but also remember uh, in this side of paradise, and at the end of that episode, Spock says that was the only time in my life when I was truly happy. Right. Um, and Kirk and, goes, "Fuck that shit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so like there's this deep sort of repressed desire maybe for an ordinary life that's like occasionally is hinted at but sure but you know maybe that's the same thing you know because Hedford is dying that this is what's this is coming out for her right I mean she she suddenly realizes what's important but well, not I only, she's I mean, on her deathbed yeah well I, I, I'm only a little sarcastic about that yeah <laughs> Whereas you know, I, I mean, it, it's also not that she wasn't just some bureaucrat or you know, cog in the in the Federation machine. She was apparently fairly important. Mm-hmm. So you know, ambitious. I you know, you you got to think. Well, that, that that's what makes it more interesting, though, is because she isn't just like, well, I just worked at a job all my my, you know, last three decades or whatever, and this is what I'm left with. You know, she was obviously very successful too, and yeah. Yeah. Some people would find that quite rewarding. Right. I think this episode, what's interesting about it is this episode, and it makes it an odd duck um, in this way, sort of thematically. And if you look at, and I sort of had, when we did the the previous version of this podcast, oh. I came up with this, you know, I started thinking about the second season, and it seemed to be, there seemed to be a lot more sort of inward-looking or introspection uh, in the first several episodes of the of the second season than in the first season. There were 
fewer episodes about um, society and more episodes about personal. Um, but th- but then Eric pointed out that we have ones coming up that, that we have go right back in there. Yes, although I'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting when we talk about uh, Journey to Babel. But um, this episode is also different in that in other episodes in this season uh, we see love sort of getting thwarted um, or it turning out to be just a mirage. Where in this episode we see love is you know ultimately triumphing over other considerations and. One one really specific way that this plays out in the episode is that you see that uh, Spock comes up with this way to defeat the companion using the electrical charge, and and he says his, it cannot fail. His cell phone jammer, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> cell phone jammer, and then it fa- and then it utterly fails. Um, and and, and yet yeah, McCoy doesn't give him any shit over it either. <laughs> no, which is. Which is kind of funny, but that's a lost it, opportunity, I think. Yeah, yeah, and but then McCoy is the one who actually comes up with a solution, which is unusual because um, you know if you see Spock as representing intellect and McCoy is representing emotion, it's McCoy you know who is suggesting that they talk to the companion, mm-hmm. and that that's the ultimately what works for them. So just like this episode is different in that it's about sort of emotion, you know. Triumphing over more intellectual things. After after uh, after Kirk and Spock miraculously deduce the nature of the relationship, which I think is is a right, little bit silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they 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 do it so quickly and accurately that uh, it, it it it's a bit on the contrived side, but eh. yeah. And one one point, um, just to be nerdy, um, if. If uh, if the nature of the companion was basically electrical, as both McCoy and Spock establish, because Spock tries to short it out, <clears throat> um, when the companion attacks Kirk and Spock, if it had that much electricity at its command, it would have simply electrocuted them very, very quickly. And not choked them? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty silly. <laughs> But, but it's it's mu- it's much more fun to be choked and then you can writhe around on the floor. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And Shatner's really good at that. Yeah, the <clears throat> the open mouth, gasping, strangling, red, red, you know, blood, you know, bloodshot and you know, red face and all that. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, I, that that part though, where it's a. The color is more soft and subdued and warm. And <laughs> back back when um, Cochran's, you know, having his little uh, communions. <laughs> yeah, it's all about this episode's all about impressions and and yeah. feelings. Sort of like a Monet painting, huh? Yes. Well, that, that's that. that I'm, again, as I pointed out last time, is the the music has a bit of an impressionistic style to it mm. uh, deliberately I, I assume I you know it's it could be that the art direction you know got whoever the guy was that wrote this uh, the idea to do it that way but it, it, it does match pretty well I'm curious uh, who uh, it's in, did it's, it's in there somewhere yeah um, it's, well, well Eric's looking through the webpage uh, how, about, how about the little se- cutscenes with um, 
well, with, I believe it's Scotty and Uhura, where they're searching through the asteroid belt and all that. I thought that was actually pretty good. Oh, you mean the... the um, where they're back on the Enterprise. The interchange between... Um, or the interplay between Uhura and Scotty? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I really like that. And, you know, when we were talking about this before, uh, we, we mentioned that uh, there was a hint of you know, some sort of relationship. A little, little bit of warmth there. <laughs> yeah, perhaps nation, but uh, that was also echoed in, um, and I know I can't, I shouldn't mention it, but Star Trek Five. Yeah. And um, there was another, uh, another. It, it was uh, there was also a hint in. It was either another episode or another movie, and I, it escapes me now which one. <gasps> But in any case, and if there, if indeed you know there was an intent to, you know, establish some kind of relationship between her and Scotty, it never went anywhere. Well, do we have any more uh, social political issues, or do we have any? I, I guess the one thing that occurred to me last time was that. This this could have could be read maybe a bit distantly as uh, you know love between different people is okay you know so in this case it's energy being inhuman well, that's that's okay even though you know we humans might find it disgusting <laughs> no I, I mean well, yeah. I think it is it is yeah. about bridging uh, about love conquering div- you know obstacles and and bridging divides and I think that. Like you said, it, that really resonated at the time. You know, it's the time when interracial marriage was, you know, only just becoming legal in many places. Right. Um, and and it was still highly stigmatized in many parts of the United States. Yeah, relationships. So it's yeah. about yeah about bridging these barriers and like and opening your mind. Yeah, things. and I don't think that's a, an accident either. Oh. More of that subversive Star Trek stuff there. You know, um, I was looking at the uh, the stills from the uh, from the remastered episode, and they have comparison on the web page on Memory Alpha. They have a comparison of the original shot and the remastered shot. And originally, the shot of the planetoid sort of a purple-blue mauve thing that fit the, you know, the general color and atmosphere uh, that's portrayed that we see when we're actually planet-side. But then in the remastered shot, it looks like um, just sort of a drab, tan, brown uh, planetoid. looks. It's pretty much like a wasteland, which I don't know that which you know, sort of matches the the rocky set, I guess. But yeah, but the the original shot more matches the tone and the look that they're trying. I think they're trying to convey. Maybe the, those guys just didn't like purple planets. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> or well, whatever, I don't know that whatever I their whatever their generic 
generic planet with a with a purple gel put over it. <laughs> whatever, yeah. However, they did that process shot there. Yeah. So, Rob, what was uh, you said earlier? Something about um, the most important point of this episode. Oh, we've covered it already. It's about love. Love. And marriage. Love triumphing. Marriage. Which, if we want to move on to Journey to Babel... You know, I'm going to pause this right now, just to make sure we're we're on track, and we'll take maybe a one-minute break. Okay. And for those of you listening at home, you can turn it off or whatever you're going to (laughs) do, Don't encourage him, John. Oh. So, one sec while I do that. Okay, we're back. Journey to Babel. Now, switching gears quite a bit on this one. Um, I don't think I, we're going to have much disagreement on this one. It's, it's, it, it's really good. Um, it is a Spock Tour de Force <laughs> character episode. Yes, Yes, it is. Yeah, I, I, I watched it just today actually, and um, before we dive into the specifics of it, the one thing that struck me as I was watching it is how, how much influence this episode is felt in the J.J. Abrams movie, with, with, right. with Spock, with Spock's character and their relationships, and his in his background. There's an awful lot of material that they used to make the you know, the new Spock. That's um, that's true. Although sometimes I don't think they really. Uh, I I just recently rented um, the Abrams movie, and uh, something about it struck me, and, and I'm, I'm not sure I can put my finger on it. Struck me as uh, them having Abrams and. Zachary Kinto and the, the scriptwriters of having only a fairly superficial understanding of the character. Well, I, um, I that's you know not to sidetrack too much about the the movie since we've spent a lot of time on it, but I I did recent so I got the, since the it came out in video I watched it again of course and uh, I looked through some of the bonus materials and apparently one of the the writers actually has a lot of Trek background. I mean, he didn't work on Trek, obviously, but he seemed, he was apparently a huge fan and knew the canon well. And But you're right, everybody else had a very superficial um, knowledge of the show and the characters, in- including Abrams. I mean, he, he comes right out and says that Star Trek, is it was not his main science fiction bag, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway... So, uh- so why do you think it's superficial uh, compared to the way that Spock is is presented in this episode? Well, I, again, I'm not sure I can put my finger on it. And we probably shouldn't spend much time on it. Um, I mean, we've already talked about the movie. But um, mm-hmm. something about the way um, when he was... The whole the whole business with the Vulcan Science Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some. There was something about that, and 
and maybe it was also his relationship with his father, that, um, I don't know, it just didn't ring true to me. It, it Maybe it's just because it's a different, you know, it's it's a different take on the character, different actor, different mm-hmm. producers. It, but, is, it the, um, is it the way he, you know, went and rejected and was kind of glib about, you know, live long and prosper? Yeah. All, all, yeah. all, all that, he just kind of blows him off and walks out of the room. That that could be that could be, uh, the, you know the whole dynamic that's presented in Journey to Babel, um, uh, well I I think it, it comes across as well it's more dramatically interesting, uh, because, you know you have a, you have a um, you have the issue of Spock. Uh, defying his father and uh, you know the familial expectations and everything for him to go to the Vulcan Science Academy to join Starfleet you know was a quite an act of rebellion and you know as is established in Journey to Babel it caused a rift that um, had kept uh, Sarek and Spock for speaking for what was it 15 years I, you know though Eric I think though that had the you know if you if, I, I could actually still see that that part of it working within the confines of the original series especially with all the time that, that has elapsed in between obviously you know they're all they're both a lot old, older at the time of journey to babel than they were when spock walks out of the science academy mm-hmm. and and of course not having the the whole interruption of the timeline business to change the the, the way their relationship, which it ultimately did, um, I I can still see that working. Mm, okay, well, I mean, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's just that uh, you know, like, so in, in rewatching Journey to Babel, and I I just rewatched it today too. In fact, about an hour ago, and. The, uh, I don't know the the rift, the the schism between Sarek and Spock. Uh, it works. It's an interesting story element. Um, it's dramatically interesting and provides um, really good tension. Um, and the resolution of it is also very satisfying. So. Um, Anyway, why don't we move on with the, the episode itself? Great. Um, one of the things that, beyond beyond just the, the, the Spock backstory on this one, is is the the entire setup with the... It, it really successfully melds... <laughs> sorry, no pun intended. Um, now, the Vulcan story with the... With, with all the, you know, diplomatic things that are going on with this... Uh, with 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 this negotiation, and also the intrigue of 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 the spy aboard and all all that kind of thing. There's there's a a, a big fight in the corridor where Kirk gets stabbed, and there, it's it's really a very satisfying episode on a number of levels. Yeah, it's like it, the contrast between this and and Metamorphosis in that respect is interesting because they are able to cram in. And balance so many different, uh, you know, types of 
of um, scenes, you know, pacing and um, subplots. And everything yeah. just I, yeah, it, yeah. It really I was, runs like a well-oiled machine, really. I and I mean, you, you could yeah. also maybe thank DC Fontana who wrote the episode, who, mm-hmm. who was already very familiar with the characters and knew how to write to write, write very well for the show. Yeah, well, she was uh, one of the story editors, so yeah, right, yeah. So, but um, I, I think that you know certainly part of the reason why it's so well paced and why the, the the character writing in it is is so good. Yeah, she was a real expert with um, with the Vulcans. No two ways about it. Yep. But yeah, the 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 way it, it's paced and everything is uh, quite quite refreshing, and, and does not happen all that often, actually. Yeah, it's like at the beginning of the episode, the they really take their time um, when when the crew is greeting uh, Sark and Amanda uh, after the shuttlecraft lands. You know, they they take their time to show they show the shuttlecraft coming into the ship, um, and then they have the set. They actually bothered to build a, a set with a shuttlecraft uh, in the bay um, just to show them leaving the shuttlecraft and coming in. And, you know. So, Really establishing the importance of these characters. It's a, it's a great build-up. Um, it's a, it's yeah, it's fantastic. And and then the the scene where Spock uh, gives the salute to Sarek and he doesn't reply in kind um, is really is really interesting. I just the performances of all three of them in this episode are are to me so impressive. And it's not only uh, Nimoy but but also Mark Leonard. Um, Jane Wyatt and and Jane Wyatt too. It really like um, just showing such restraint, but but you know, buried down there somewhere, there are these, you know, these real like these this you know irritation and this resentment and um, yeah, and 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 the and other things. The, the the thing that's also striking about it is how. You know, it's it's really the the Vulcans or Spock's family, really that that get all the powerhouse emotional scenes. Ironically, that right. here you you get the big scene that sticks in my head after uh, um, Amanda is is basically trying to commit Spock to you know give command up and all that, and and she leaves the room and you know and Spock is just standing there and he just kind of walks into the the closed um, doorway and. Puts his hand yeah, on the door. The, it's it's really quite yeah. dramatic, you know. He, and we can't we can't so see well. his face. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, it's, it's 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 sort of like. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and it's also not overdone. I don't think, considering the the emotional intensity of it. No, I I think they're uh, superb performances, and uh, uh, it well. It might be interesting to contrast those performances with uh, the performance. Uh, well, Mark Leonard is in uh, Star Trek Three and Four as Sarek, and uh, Jane Wyatt is in reprises her role in uh, Four as well. Mm-hmm. And how would you uh, how would you compare those performances? I, I, you know, Jane Wyatt didn't seem to have all that much to do in the movie. No, she so didn't. So I, you know, it, it, that's there's not a whole lot there to really con- 
compare with, but um, I I think Mark Leonard has always been very very consistent with that character, and and also I believe he's, he's yeah he's in a really good next gen episode too. Yeah. Oh yeah, where where he <clears throat> get, he gets to play that character again really really well. So I I, I I see a lot of consistency there, and you know, but but this this one he there's a lot of nuance in in, in his performance I think. Yeah. So, and and actually, in this in this episode, Kirk is 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 kind of upstaged. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, like you said, a spot tour de force. This episode, really, and it's and despite all the other elements, um, and the the intrigue, the mystery, um, the space combat, it's really this is another episode about love. Really, mm-hmm. love conquering uh, over other things. You know, it's about and and, and even and, and the the Kirk Spock thing even comes back in because Kirk is is quite badly injured and is willing to to go up and you know <laughs> lie to Spock basically to 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 help him save his father. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, he's risked his life. I mean, McCoy yeah. says, you know, if you. You start to bleed again, you could die. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Uh, speaking of, speaking of McCoy, I, I and McCoy is good in this one. I, I I really like him. He 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 does his usual good job in this one. But um, there are a couple of times when he he, he seems to he he often says, "Well, I don't know anything about Vulcans and blah blah blah." It, it's it seems it, I find it a little bit hard to believe that you know some, somebody in his position. It is doesn't know a little bit more, or you know can't go figure it out. <laughs> well, he obviously does. I mean, yeah, he, he does. But, but some of the dialogue makes him seem kind of incredibly ignorant, considering how long the Vulcans have been around and all that. It, it's it, it, it's a nitpick, but that, that well, you know, I think part of that may be that um, as a doctor. Uh, He's erring on the conservative side out of concern for his patient safety. Yeah, part of it. But there are scenes in there where you know Spock knows more about it than he does. <laughs> and, and, well, yeah. and somebody. But well, you remember also that he's irritated by that. You know, he's well. I'm glad somebody's asking me something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, to me, I would think that being on a high-profile. Uh, Starship out there exploring the galaxy and all that, that, that the chief medical officer would have a range a bit more beyond humans. Yeah, although it, was com- it seems like still pretty rare for Vulcans to be serving on Federation ships at this time. Yeah, it's they, established. They about that, but No, actually, I don't know that it's established in the series, but um, uh... Well, actually, I, th- I can't remember which episode it is. Um, it's pretty well established that Spock is is the only Vulcan serving in Starfleet, or one of the few. So it's at, at this time there, it's something of a rarity. Well, at least he was able to go look it up on Wikipedia or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, what how about the the international tension? <laughs> uh, on on this on this one, 
and, and to and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the uh, the 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 Tellerite guys look especially bad in high definition. <laughs> With the, with the, yeah, with their, uh, with their masks and all that. <laughs> yeah, they they do look sort of like Halloween masks, don't they? They, and I do remember them be, being creepy. Um, in low back res, in, yeah. back when low res, um, being kind of creeped out by the, by the lack of eyes or the just the holes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does it does seem a little goofy watching the the scenes with the delegates. Um, you know, it's like somebody's. Uh, or, or the two, uh, the two dwarfs with the fezes and the gold face paint. Right. <laughs> like they, right. they spend this yeah. entire tracking shot of them, you know, pouring themselves drinks while while there's this expository dialogue going on. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. There's all there's these plates full of uh, multicolored styrofoam or whatever that was. Styrofoam called. food things. Yeah. In different I think they actually used. Uh, marshmallows for a lot of that. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That they put. I don't know. I think it works okay. I, it. I just don't remember know, some of the detail. I guess in these guys. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that's what's fun about rewatching it is seeing, is seeing some of these details again. I I think the Andorians, um, still look pretty interesting, and the. And that one guy has yeah. has a funky accent too. Course, yeah, I sort of wondered if that was his the actor's actual accent. It might be. Um, because it's not, it's very, it up? sounds very convincing. Yeah. yeah, let's let's find out what that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he I he he was good. He was like somebody in the old old days would have been played by like Sam Jaffe or one of those guys who always played Asians and Eastern Europeans and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I but he did definitely have a, an exotic uh, flair. Yeah, that's why I thought that character worked. The, um... and apparently his name was Reggie Nalder. Died oh. in 1991. He was born in Vienna, so he was... Ah, oh. he, he could have even been a, you know, a World War II Austrian Hollywood refugee. Like a lot of guys were. Thought about yeah, directors. Yeah. Yep. Hmm, interesting. Oh. Okay. And I, I the the line that I've always loved and I was reminded of again <laughs> is when they had they ever the, Sarek has the little confrontation and he and he basically says uh, you know what is it Th- threats are illogical. Threats are illogical. Payment is usually expensive. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the way he delivers that just cracks me up. It's so good. <laughs> yep. Well, and you, I, I also think it's an interesting touch that when um, when Gav attacks him, you know, he just makes this, you know, basically a perfunctory offhand yeah. gesture with his arm and Gav is knocked back into the yeah, wall. Yeah, the, the badassness of Vulcans is reinforced. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of... Also, oh, go ahead, Rob. I was going to say, related to that, Spock's teddy bear, which which Spock says actually had six inch fangs. Um, yeah. Six inch fangs, yeah. So, again, and you know, there's an uh, just a, a, actually a takeoff on this um, episode. Um, there is an um, an animated episode, um, and let me see if I can find the the name of it. But oh, it's yeah, one where. 
Yeah, it's where um, the uh, yesteryear. Yeah, uh, it's one where they uh, it again features the uh, the guardian of forever from City on the Edge of Forever, and Spock goes back to his own childhood, and it involves that Salot and. Uh, it's actually, as I mean, I. It's been many, many, many years um, well, since we'll I've seen podcast, it. Podcast that series too. Ah. Oh, but um, it'll be pretty short. <laughs> it actually shows. Uh, um, if you look it up on uh, Wikipedia, I don't know. It doesn't show the say lot anyway. Well, that looks be like your, a giant. Your homework for next time. I'm sorry. Find us an image of the Salot. There you go. Um, I I dare you to do better. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, how about some social political uh, Cold War stuff in this one? No, there, there. I mean, I think that um, you know there wasn't anything that jumped out at me as I was watching the episode. Um, you know, except the fact that he, that Sarek wants the, this planet, um, to be, you know, admitted to the Federation so that its people won't be exploited, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that their, their own, the resources that they have, you know, won't be just extracted and, and they'll be left, you know, penniless or, you know, they'll, they'll be left without anything, and I think, and that definitely reflects, you know, a, a philosophy towards an approach to the third world, mm-hmm. right? Um, of course. That they're better off if they, you know, under the influence of the United States, where they all more likely have, you know, it's a, obviously a, um, you know, a cleaned up ver- version of what actually happened, but, you know, that under the influence of the United States, you'll be better off, you know, you'll be Right, because the United States has never exploited any any other countries or cultures. Right, and we've for we've profit. never we've never supported dictators, you know. And yeah, yeah, exactly. We've never like used countries for their resources and or, or allowed uh, you know private outfits to exploit the locals. And yeah. Anyway, right. anyway, yeah, that that's a good and, and it's plus they're about what we aspire to be. You know, that's right. what that's what Star Trek. You know, in terms of Cold War, you know metaphors is really about what the United States ideally should be. And and this is a real uh, a, a good a good window into the, the the Star Trek world and what the the different all, and it kind of reminds us that there are a lot of it's not just the humans and the Vulcans and there are all these other races and planets out there that that are trying to get along and you know have in this big federation which is referenced a lot but it, you get a lot of uh, it, it gets fleshed out a lot more in this episode, which which is also really fun. Yeah, adds a lot to the to the Trek canon to the Trek universe. Yeah, this, this episode this really episode. Has, is is thick with it, considering all the background things and 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 again all the the Federation infrastructure that's developed just in this one episode. Yep. And it doesn't feel um, it doesn't feel dated or, or hokey or you know it. The story holds up pretty well, um, which is impressive. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, a really good, and we already talked about the pacing of it, but the 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 suspense of the not only who 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 killed the the Tellarite and and who's sending the secret transmissions and mm-hmm. all that. It's it's very very well placed and 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 builds a, a good deal of intrigue. You know what I thought there was... Is, Go ahead, Eric. Um, there, there is one minor uh, technical point that uh, that I noticed. Actually, this was... I, I noticed it some time ago. And that's that... Uh, the problem with Sarek is, is that he's having... He has his heart defect and has to have surgery. Uh, this is revealed within, what, 24 hours of their having... Disembarked from Vulcan, something like that. I mean, they're not that far from Vulcan, and if the ambassador's life was in danger and McCoy was uncertain as to whether or not he could successfully perform the surgery, wouldn't it be better to just turn around and go straight back to Vulcan? Yeah, I was thinking the same mm-hmm. thing. Um, that because it didn't seem, I, yeah that it, it would be worth, that that's exactly what you would try to do in that situation is return to Vulcan and, you know, the, the conference can wait if someone's life is at stake. Also, right. you, you wonder why um, Sarek, knowing that he had this serious health condition, would undertake this mission. Um, although maybe he, maybe he was the only one who could really pull it off. I, I mean, it's possible, I guess, but... Well, you know, the, there are some hints there. Um, it, it's a good point, but, you know, the as Spock demonstrates the Vulcan commitment to duty, um, Sarek being the Vulcan ambassador to the Federation, undoubtedly considered it his duty to do this, to, to go on this mission. And it's also um, revealed that he was in the process of planning a retirement. Right. Which McCoy brings and, up. Well, and that it was the, the the reason that he came out of retirement was that he felt so strongly about uh, this particular issue so mm-hmm. it was probably a matter of figuring well you know I'm on this medication I'm uh, presumably his doctor said well okay and you know the the stress of the trip or whatever you know caused his problem but I mean, it's all speculation. Right. Uh, misogyny Corner. Have you got any? Well, I mean, there is sort of the the way that the place of women in Vulcan society, which... Which we, um, we talked... I know we talked about it in a mock time, but... We, we, yeah, which we talked about a little bit. Um, and here, you know, Amanda says that he is a Vulcan. Yeah. I am his wife. Yeah. When yeah, exactly. Sorry, exactly. he's condescending to her. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, and is you know telling her to ordering her around, telling it, her. It, you know, it seems to be written life. from a you know this is a, a foreign culture, and they it, or the reference back in the first season, you know, Vulcans treat their women strangely. But you know the yeah. thing is, what what strikes me about this is that. Um, it seems to me that for Sarek and Amanda, it's just a formality because, you know, it's almost like she's 
humoring him. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, she gets her way. Well, I think, and, um, and they do have a, a they in private. I think that's true. And, yeah. and she, during these official functions, you know, acts the part. Right. Um, of course, but that that leads you to a bigger question: Is the the Vulcan society? You know, how how do how are women treated in Vulcan society? There's a, a society where there are all these formal, um, you know, rituals, and but underneath there might be a lot more going on. You know, it's sort well, of implied, like like in Amic time. You know. Well, notice that in Mock time that Pal, I mean, she is the the patriarch of. Spock's family, and apparently is Mate, very Mate, prestigious. Um, and you also look at um, Star Trek Three when you know when they're doing the refusion up on Mount Salea, that it's a Vulcan priestess who does that, and is obviously treated with significant reverence. Yeah, I think that's right. true. Of, of course, then you get um, what is it? Uh, Oh, what's her name? Tepring, uh, the right, and, and 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 who who is within that situation is is treated more like property. Well, and actually, Tapao says outright that you know you have chosen the challenge, or you prepared to become the property of the victor. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, there, it's uh, interesting. There there is this weird uh, inconsistency to it, and I, I mean, I'm not really going to pretend that when originally these things were written that the writers fleshed out the entire Vulcan <laughs> social order. Right. I, I don't think it really went anywhere near that far. So it, some, of, some of it will undoubtedly become a little inconsistent as you go when you build upon them like that. You would yeah. expect the, the culture to be, Vulcan culture to be more progressive than, you know, the human culture. Um... But in this respect, apparently not. Well, yeah. and I think it's also or, just because they wanted to write them as differently as possible. Yeah, to right. Make them seem right. as different from humans, and also that it's like it's pointed out that uh, you know, yeah, they don't—they're emotionless most of the time, but they've got these these weird things they have to do. You know? <laughs> kind of, you know, like like it evens it out so so somehow for the humans, who otherwise you know might seem. You know, inadequate. <clears throat> excuse me, inadequate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and oh. and we don't get a strong impression of Vulcan society. Although, if you look at Enterprise, and I don't know that you necessarily would, but or would want to, except for the fourth season, which was actually pretty good. They they talk a lot about Vulcan society, mm-hmm. and you know, it's. It's an interesting mixture because, I mean, the way it's portrayed, there is a significant um, adherence to tradition and structure and formality, but they're they're also very, as, as Rob alluded, very progressive. Um, so it's um, you know a culture that apparently balances those two. Well, seemingly contradictory extremes. Mm-hmm. It's 
why it fascinates us so much, Vulcan culture. It is fascinating. Indeed. And um, I think this episode went back and used a lot of stock music, especially they reused a lot of cues from a mock time, actually, um, which I recognized oh, pretty, yeah. pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, oh, we got the, all this, this Vulcan stuff. Well, dig out that... <laughs> those music cues from that other Vulcan episode. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it, it works pretty well, though. Um, I, uh, I, I did watch the remastered version, and one of the things that, you know, you notice right away is, you know, they redid the entire shot of the shuttle coming in. Mm-hmm. Which which looks really cool. I mean, not the original wasn't that bad, actually. I, I always kind of liked it. But that, that's pretty impressive. It's, you might want to go check that out sometime. Um... The I, I noticed they kept the uh, the aliens uh, scout ship still looking like this little spinning disc. Um, they, so they didn't really change that a whole lot. It looks maybe a little bit more sleek and everything, but they they kind of kept to the the original look there. And the the rest of it is, uh, you know, not all that different. One of the funny things is, that, uh, of course, is. I, I, I thought when the, the opening scene they've all gotten in their dress uniforms and they go out there and the shuttle open opens up and this big column of red shirts runs out there yeah <laughs> just just yeah. but right right before they they the op- the doors open you see the the red shirts adjusting their t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> which you know, I, I thought it was pretty pretty funny it's like like oh I've got my dress red shirts on. <laughs> <laughs> we also see uh, Kirk shirtless a couple of times in this episode. Yeah, one, sort of one, one, one is very oh. gratuitous. Yeah, he's, he's wearing a girdle. Maybe to keep his gut from sticking out, apparently. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you're right. I think exactly right. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, Definitely. I also know the very... Weird little thing I noticed is that when McCoy is doing surgery on Sarek, you know that thing that's over Sarek's body or torso. There's you see a little, a couple of times you see a little bit of like smoke or something coming out of it. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. I what was going on with that? Or McCoy was like soldering something. <laughs> <laughs> or was it supposed to be like you know the equipment malfunctioning? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't but, but of course he doesn't say anything about it. It's kind of strange. Oh, oh, that was weird. Hmm. Smoking surgical equipment. Oh. Well, I think we're ready to wrap this one up. I believe so. Okay. Yes. Great, um, Eric. What do we got on the on the docket next time? Uh, one second. I got off the. Next up is Friday's Child. Ah, yes. Another episode about love. It is. <laughs> and birth. Plenty of action in it. And birth and babies. Birth yep. and babies. Well, I'm going to cut this one off, so uh, if you've held on this long, I congratulations. And thanks for listening. Good night. Thanks. Night. Good night. <laughs>